0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: I mean, there are even some exhibits I've found where there's a label on the exhibit saying if anyone knows what this is, could they please get in touch?
0: That's Dinah Kasson, a globally renowned leader in museum exhibition design, who established her design practice in 1970 and her partnership with Roger Mann in 1984. Since 1992, Cassenman has completed numerous high-profile assignments, ranging from the British Galleries and Hollywood Costume at the V&A, the Churchill Museum and the First World War Gallery at the Imperial War Museum, and the Central Hall of the Natural History Museum. In France, they've designed La Cité du Vin in Bordeaux and the Centre International de l'Art Parietal in the Dordogne. In the US, they designed the Feathers to the Stars Gallery in Frost Science, Miami. Their work has been published extensively and has won numerous awards. Dinah Casson is a trustee of the Towner Gallery, Eastbourne, Sussex, and the Royal Fine Art Commission Trust. With her partner, Roger Mann, she was elected to the Faculty of Royal Designers for Industry and in 2018, she was awarded a CBE. Since the 1970s, she's taught and examined at design schools such as Kingston University and the Royal College of Art. Her new book is entitled, Closed on Mondays, Behind the Scenes at the Museum, Published by Lund Humphreys in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Dina.
1: Oh, well, Max, it's very nice to talk to you.
0: Well, it's been a while. I'm looking forward to talking about your new book. But first, let's recap how we met, which was nothing less than planning a museum for UNESCO's World Heritage Sites, which was to be in Turin. And it was such an exciting idea. It was felled by Italian electoral politics. Could you share your most vivid memory of that quest?
1: The main thing I remember about going to Veneria for the first time was the scale of the place that we were working in. The hunting lodge itself was like a palace. And we were given the stable to work in, which I think was big enough to house 2,000 horses. What was very nice about it was that the grooms lived above the horses, and the horses kept them warm, and the stench of the horses was moderated by the lemoneria, which ran next door, which I thought was a sort of wonderful, neat, circular bit of architecture.
0: The breath of the horses heated the orangerie and the exactly. lemon I mean, trees, how right? so there was that? reciprocity. Has anybody designed anything that clever in the last 300 years?
1: I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, and it's partly the scale, isn't it? Just to, I mean, right. thinking that you've got 2,000 authors is quite something. It and then is. the other thing, of course, on the project itself is so interesting, which is to make an exhibition which somehow celebrated and marked the work that UNESCO do and the breadth of the projects that they recognize is so interesting. And what we were doing was trying to find lateral ways of connecting them because it was going to clearly going to be a changing exhibition because there was too much stuff to put in at one go. So the whole thing was going to be projected, which enabled the content to be changed frequently. One says all these things gaily, knowing that frequently is just like a dream in the sky. I can't remember when this was, Max. I don't know if you can remember. But, I mean, the idea of having a completely projected exhibition was sort of slightly radical then, I think. It was. Certainly the projectors would have been steam-driven, really. So uh, (laughs) how we thought it was all going to work out, I've not a clue. But anyway, that was the idea. And as you say, the local elections put a stop to it. So that was a short dream. But jolly exciting. It was wonderful.
0: But you're accustomed to taking on unexpected spaces, unexpected challenges, that's your strong suit. And the introduction to your new book, Closed on Mondays, titled Why I Wrote This Book, gives us a little sense of that breadth of your career. Could you possibly summarize what we would call on this side of the pond with an elevator speech, why you wrote the book?
1: I've been working in museums for about 30 years as an independent designer, I mean, with my company. So I wasn't locked into any one museum. I think the book was a sort of downloading of some frustrations, which needed a bit of research to really untangle. And the problem with working is that you never really have time to do that sort of research Mm -hmm. or reading. It was a good excuse, really, to sort of do all the stuff that I should have done 25 years ago. But there were some internal reasons and some external reasons. The internal reasons was what I can only describe as the sort of invisibility of our profession. And I think every profession thinks that they're not appreciated. I suppose surgeons might not feel like that. But, I mean, our profession of being exhibition designers and museum designers is that you're kind of not supposed to be noticed. You know, it's a bit like theatre design, that you you can sort of kill something or you you can elevate it into something beyond what it is. But essentially, you're there as a sort of discrete backup to support whatever's going on. So I would go out and meet people at a dinner party or something. They say, "Oh, what do you do?" And you say, "Oh, well, I'm a designer." And they say, "Oh, what do you design?" looking at me. They say, "Oh, fashion." And I say, "No, I design museums." And then there was a sort of complete blank expression of, "Oh, what? What do you mean? The the labels or you know?" And then you have to sort of go into exactly what an exhibition is about, and it gets very tedious. So there was a bit of that. And the external frustrations were just the sort of ones that one trips up over. Like, I thought it was so interesting that when we went to the Museum of the American Indian in New York, it was the first museum I'd ever been to where the texts and the labels had been signed by somebody. I think up to that point, I'd assumed that all labels had come from God, really. I mean, they were written with great authority and conviction, and they were there to be believed. And then this museum made me realize that museum labels are in opinions. I mean, there are a bit of facts, some facts, but most of it's opinion. And that was a great eye-opener for me. And then I didn't understand why gold frames were put around every painting, regardless of what it was, and quite often very frilly gold frames. And I wanted to find out why that was. And I was also interested in the cult of the authentic, because in our work, we, from time to time, we used facsimiles. Some museums won't consider facsimiles. They put out original objects, and if they begin to fade, they put them away and put something else out. And I talk about this curious thing of they call this resting, mm-hmm. which is a sort of weird idea that somehow you, you put a textile on display and after six months you rest it like it's going to somehow recover what it's lost, and be all fit in another six months, it'll all be ready to go again. And, of course, it's not like that at all. It's a one-way ticket. Um, (laughs) So some some museums are very happy to have facsimiles of letters and things so that visitors can get the story, even if they're not looking at absolutely the right thing, the original thing. And others get quite hysterical if they're not looking at, at the real thing. So... The other thing that I was interested in is why people collect things, the problem of collecting things, what you do with your collection when you're about to die and your children clearly don't want it. Are you collecting to define your own identity? I tripped up this wonderful advertisement from Bonham saying, Let us help you find your identity. You know, I mean, it's like, really? I thought this was interesting, and Freud, of course, was interesting. He said that collecting was about poor potty training. And so I could see that this was something I wanted to spend a few months reading about, and I did, (laughs) and I had a very interesting time.
0: And you left us with something fantastic to delve into, because among your insights, there's great common sense, there's also great wisdom, and you write about windows as well as picture frames, and you write about Ah, code checks. With all these facets, of how museums and other cultural settings are designed. You have to collaborate with a project architect, right? Can you share how that typically works as a collaboration?
1: A lot of our time is spent working in existing spaces. So architects are usually there because somebody's got to put in the a better air conditioning or raise the floor or put in better windows or whatever, whatever. But if you're working with architects on a new building, it's really potluck. Sometimes it's a delicious collaboration, other times it's very painful. I, one thing I have noticed is that clients are terrified of architects. Mm-hmm. And they are terrified of saying to them, you know what, this building you're designing for us just isn't good enough. Can you go away and do it again? Because we want a building for us not a building for your portfolio, you know. And um, we, as the interior designers, if you like, the fit-out designers, the exhibition designers, have to go to the architects and say, I don't think this is going to work, you know, because there's actually no place to put anything. Uh, There are no vertical walls to hang anything. And it might be a very beautiful space, and we acknowledge that you have made a very beautiful space, but it's actually bloody useless, you know. But clients can't do that i mean the whole thing of how architects are selected the trophy architect well the trophy building by the trophy architect it's it's so much more to do with politics and economics and so little to do with art or how mm. best to show things actually and i th- i completely understand that it's fine but it can be it can present lots of problems when it mm-hmm. works well It's fantastic. But of course, one thing to remember is that if you're designing a museum where you have a permanent collection, it's a very different brief from a museum where it's a venue where exhibitions are going to be changing all the time.
0: Well, and you've worked in lots of contexts. I'd love to talk about the project you did with the Norwegian architect Snoheda to design a facsimile of the Lascaux Cave, of, I believe, 17,000-year-old cave outside yeah. Montignac in the Doldogne. How did you yeah. go about arriving at a strategy to bring the original cave and its wall images alive?
1: We had quite a tight brief from the client. And, um, and they the client, weren't, to us, they
0: weren't cavemen, in other words, you're saying these no, clients No, it's
1: a were, shame, actually. One of the really wonderful things about this project is that, as we've mentioned about labels, Generally speaking, you place an object and there's a label alongside it saying who made it, when, what it was made of, who owned it, and da-da-da. Well, great thing about these paintings is that they don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. nobody knows. And to have a sort of blank space there, nobody had the courage to say we don't know. Um, <laughs> and that that's always something God. I mean, I think in the book I mentioned the two or three examples of where somebody's had the courage to say we don't know. And mm-hmm. and immediately, you know, you can see visitors' faces light up. I mean, there are even some exhibits i found where there's a label on the exhibit saying, if anyone knows what this is, could they please get in touch? You know, <laughs> I mean, how joyous is that? It's just so wonderful. Because then suddenly mm-hmm. the museum is a is a vulnerable institution, you know, with weaknesses. And so you can engage with that all the time that they're somehow invulnerable and almighty. It's completely impossible. Anyway, going back to Montignac, I think we decided quite early on that we were going to somehow try and make it feel as close to how those four boys who found these paintings, how it might have felt for them. The installation that was there When we started, there's already a kind of smaller facsimile. You start with a little exhibition, and there's a guide that stands with you in this little exhibition, jabbering away about things that you simply don't care about, because I think it's a bit like exhibitions that insist that you watch a a video before you go in. Mm -hmm. You want to watch the video when you come out. You don't know what the questions that you have in your mind are until you've been through it, really. The moment for questions has to be very delicately placed. We take people straight into the cave. You sort of walk down this walkway, getting lower and lower and lower underground, and you walk straight in, and there, bang, there it is. You are actually at the bottom of a hill of scree where the boys sort of slid down. From then on in, what one's trying to do is to keep it as personal uh, journey through the cave as possible, given that, you know, there are 4,000 people a day, if not more. They wanted six originally, and we managed to bring it down to four, but I suspect it's slipped up a bit. So that you don't, you, of course, you're in a group most of the time. I think sometimes if you're, you're on your own, but most of the time you're in a group. But it's to do with somehow holding the lighting so that it doesn't look uh, what, what would it be like? Like a sort of shopping mall where you've got the whole thing lit all the way down. We tried to engineer pools of light so you sort of felt that this was your bit that you were looking at. And as you walked down the cave, that the next pool of light would open up. I mean, it was something like that. That was the mm-hmm. sort of idea that we were going for.
0: It's so amazing to have that responsibility, really, Dinah. I mean, that extraordinary moment of human achievement is something, as you say, misunderstood, barely researched in a way because we just don't have anything to go on. Whereas the Victorian Albert Museum, which is Uh going through a bit of a controversy, as one might say, where you are, around exhibition policy and focus, you undertook the British galleries some years ago. And did so much to make it come alive. I really enjoyed being able to design my own coat of arms as an American. Of course, we are lacking in anything like that. But you provided all these points of entry. Can you talk a bit about that project and what you thought was particularly interesting?
1: What was interesting about that was that the sort of tiny core team, which was me and the senior curator and the educator and another curator. The four of us went on this little trip guess where, around the US and Canada, to look at how to treat visitors, actually. Because I really think that up to that point, most of the museums here, most of the big ones anyway, regarded visitors as a pain in the neck, really. They were a nuisance. And in America, you've always understood that if you don't have visitors, you don't have museums. I mean, you know, the sort of relationship, it starts from a different base. And so that's what we were learning about. It was completely extraordinary. It gave us the confidence to care about visitors, introduce interactivity and hands-on stuff that had been developed for science centers into a decorative art museum, which hadn't been done in the UK before, but had been done in America. It was so reassuring to feel that actually this was possible. You just had to do it elegantly and with quality. And the idea also that having education with a capital E in the galleries rather than in a room down a long passage in the basement somewhere, that education was something that applied to everybody. I mean, it was very interesting that there were terrible fights. Like we had screens, you know, computer screens alongside historic. Objects and this was sort of thought to be so shocking, and how could you do that, and so on. And then, when people watched the little video clips, you know, about how books were made, how miniatures were made, what Jacquard looms were, and so on, I mean, the change in their approach was visceral. Some of these screens were running little quizzes, you know, like defining what Baroque is or something. I have to say, this is not us. We just had to bed them into the galleries and make them look elegant. The thinking behind this, unfortunately, wasn't ours. I wish it had been. But it was so interesting that these traditional VNA visitors, who used to treat these galleries like an extension of their living room, they used to claim ownership of them, really, would come in at 10 o'clock, race to the screen where they were chucked out the night before to carry on with the quiz to see how their score was going. You know, the sort of competitive nature of guessing dates and all this sort of stuff. They absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. And this was a great eye opener.
0: And you've, in other contexts, been very successful at threading technology in and among original objects and artifacts. The Churchill Museum has a striking feature with a long table on which are projected manila folders for every day of Churchill's life as yeah. prime minister, yeah. and the visitor can open them by touching the table and imagining that they're opening it. What inspired you on top of that to have animations of submarines and RAF planes disrupt what was otherwise a table of static projected folders?
1: Well, in fact, a lot of the folders hold animations, and a lot of them hold hmm. little film clips and things. So, But what was happening, it was so nice that the, this long table 13 meters long, would have people engaging with different dates. Um, they usually went for their birth date, of course, as a sort of random date to go for. And just as they were doing that, suddenly somebody else would have triggered a date on which something, like Armistice Day, for example, and then the whole table would be taken over by poppies, for example, mm-hmm. or a V-2 bomber. Or So if somebody hit a key date where would just take it over. And it, <laughs> and it was to do with surprise. And I learned this when we were doing the British galleries at the v It's to do with when you have time in a museum, we've all experienced this thing of a sort of fatigue that begins to gradually creep over you. So you're taking in less and less information. You're really just groping for the next thing, which is just going to give you something nice or a nice surprise or something. Kicking people suddenly, giving them a shock, either for what they turn around a corner and they see, or something like the table where they're suddenly surprised by what's in front of them. It's to do with just giving them that little kick, really. It's a sort of bambouche that just wakes people up. In a way, part of our task, I think, is to keep people awake, you know? And it's understanding that this is nothing to be ashamed of, it's just the way we are. Most exhibitions shouldn't last longer than, you know, three quarters of an hour, or something really. But people are travelling, they've come across the world, they you know and they can't. They've got to do two hours in this museum, they've got three hours in this museum, they've got another two museums to do tomorrow. It's shattering and exhausting and completely mad, actually, of course. But there's a neurosis about, you know, I'm never going to be here again, so I really just got to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. our job is to sort of keep them going, really.
0: Well, it's fascinating to think how museum professionals – look at objects as you've described as their terrain and they have these interlopers come in who have to be fed. Whereas you thread the needle between the visitor's expectations and the intention of the maker of the object and the desires. It's a very complicated rhythm. And you've mentioned that facsimiles, in your view, are fine. Sophisticated techniques to reproduce artworks and objects are continuously improving. The human eye, last I checked, isn't getting better. Is there a point at which you believe facsimiles can provide better experiences than, say, a painting behind bulletproof UV-filtered glass in dim light.
1: Well, I think there's this one classic story which demonstrates this for me, anyway, which is the the big Veronese painting in Venice of the Marriage of mm-hmm. Cana, which is in the refectory at San Giorgio. It was painted by Veronese in conjunction with Palladio, with whom he worked to cover the whole of the end wall of this big room where the monks would have breakfast, lunch, and tea if they had such things. It was a very, very famous painting, and people came from all over the world to see it, including Napoleon, who liked it so much. He cut it up into one-meter strips and took it back to Paris, stitched it together, and put it in the Louvre. Now, I think it is the biggest painting in the Louvre. It certainly Mm -hmm. can't be moved because it's in this room and that's it. And it currently shares the room with the Mona Lisa, which is one of the smaller paintings in the Louvre. So it's a kind of crazy room where you've got people queuing to see the Mona Lisa with their backs to the Veronese. So a few years ago, a facsimile was made by Facto Marte of this painting, which was then put back in the refectory. So here we have two versions of this painting in the Louvre, It's in a a room without windows. It's got a frame around it. It's hung very low because it's so big. So it's just above the skirting. It's got two doors either side of it. And most people have their back to it because they're looking at the Mona Lisa. When the facsimile, which is in Venice, it's in the right city, it's in the right room, it's at the right height, it has the right natural light coming through the windows. There's no question in my mind which has more authority, actually. It's not more authenticity, but it's more authority, and there it sits. The story of it is interesting, but I mean, here you have it where it should be. I mean, For example, we've got the big fight about the Elgin Marbles, for example, and lots mm-hmm. of other um, objects, and restitution is a sort of big issue here as I, as I notice in the States. You know, I'm sort of feeling, actually. There you are in Athens with a museum ready to receive, displayed in context. You can see the Parthenon through the window. Well, I went to see the Elgin marbles the other day in the British Museum, and um, I was really horrified. I mean, I think that they look completely terrible. I haven't seen them for a while, but what I'm saying is that the room is foul. The ceiling is filthy, The graphics are appalling. The way they're displayed makes absolutely no sense. And, of course, the British Museum come back and say, well, all the context and the story and the history is all in leaflets and people can pick it up and understand and blah, blah, blah. That's all fine. You know, If you can't look after them properly, if this is the best we can do, how can we possibly claim that we ought to keep them? But you could easily make a facsimile of them. And very soon the facsimile makers will be able to make a facsimile of marble which will be really very hard to tell. So then it's about faith, and -hmm. it's about belief, and it's about what somebody tells you, of course. It's what somebody tells you.
0: And it's also about the market, that is with respect to objects that are traded. So the fetishization of authenticity is so often connected to price value rather than than faith, but they're both important. You describe your work in the book as akin to a theatre director, and given that your audience isn't confined to a seat, how important is it for museum-goers to follow a narrative that you've created?
1: I think in temporary exhibitions, visitors tend to be much more obedient, and they tend to start at image one and work their way around. In permanent displays, they tend to be less I suppose they feel that it's always going to be there and they can come back or something. I don't know. But anyway, I think research has shown there's a lot more sort of jumping around. People tend to be attracted to things that look faintly familiar or remind them of something. You know, So it's actually quite hard to force people to follow a narrative. If it's a gripping story, of course they will. If it's such a gripping story that there are lots of people there then you've lost it because nobody wants to queue up to read a label or read something or see something. I mean, if there's a blockage, they'll skip it and go on to the next thing. So it's almost inherently impossible to have a fixed narrative in a gallery, I think. I mean, the nice thing about the British galleries was that that it's a mix of narrative and theme. I mean, a lot of museums arrange their galleries in themes and that's usually to cover up gaps in the collection. It's much easier to display whatever it is you've got in the cupboard if you arrange it thematically. If you go to chronology, and in a way narrative is a um, form of chronology, you're more vulnerable unless you're borrowing from somewhere else.
0: And I think the distinction you draw between temporary shows and permanent galleries is very much a topic of the moment, there's a lot of gnashing of teeth these days about how contemporary art experiences, whether Kusama installations, mirror rooms, rain rooms, are edging out permanent collection galleries. Yeah. I'm wondering how long you think so-called permanent galleries should last before their permanence is made over?
1: Um, I'm a trustee here of a small museum which has a nice sort of largely 20th century collection. I mean, about 3,500 objects, so it's it's small. But they also have big contemporary art shows. But what's been interesting is because of finances and all sorts of things, the permanent collection is now being re-examined. And what they're doing is that they've invited guest curators to come in and select from the collection to make a display, to make their own narrative, if you like, out of what's in the store. Now, this means treating the permanent collection as a changing thing, as almost as much as a temporary exhibition. It doesn't need to be that. But we all know that when you move home and you take your old objects and you put them into a new situation against a different coloured wall, against a new table, against a new a different chair or whatever it is, they look completely different. And you look at them like a sort of they're not sort of old friends; they're new friends, and that can be very exciting. So, I don't think there's any one way to look at anything. Thank goodness. I think permanent collections should be churned. I think they need to be rehung, re-understood, re-offered with whatever theme you like. I mean, you could just get all the red paintings out of the permanent collection, you know, and say, let's you know, what is red? At the same time, you could do it as a completely tight historical story. The point being is that I think there's so many different ways that you can use permanent collections. And I think the whole thing of blockbusters and moving art around the world all the time is going to be more tricky from now on. And also these big installations, which, of course, I mean, they're fine. And and people love them. Uh, I think they're one-liners, really. A lot of them aren't really very good. So I think there's something precious about permanent collections, and I think that they should be moved around a lot. Mm -hmm.
0: It leads me to one last observation about this challenge post-COVID, where audiences are hankering to get back in the presence of something more long-lasting than their Netflix account. Do you suppose that in the immediate aftermath of COVID, as we begin to reclaim public spaces, There'll be a new appetite for permanent collections.
1: Whether there's a new appetite is going to be dependent on the museums and how they offer it. I suppose what I'm saying is that I think museums could make more of their permanent collections. And it's their task, in a way, to offer them to their visitors in a way that makes their jaw drop. You know, I thought I I knew that picture. I thought I knew that piece of work, but I don't actually. And now I see it completely differently. How wonderful is that? It's pretty cheap. The best exhibition I went to, temporary exhibition I went to, was at the Uffizi in Florence. It had been advertised all over the town that there was a special exhibition at the Uffizi. When I got there, all they'd done was to add some labels. So they didn't change the hang. They just changed the labels. I mean, what they might have done, if they could be bothered, but they were very lazy in those days, they would have taken the pictures off the wall that were pertinent to this idea and put them in a separate room, put lots of labels up saying da di da da They left them where they were. (laughs) They just added more labels, which I thought was completely brilliant. It was very witty, very naughty. And actually, if you were so inclined, you could have followed the narrative just by hanging on to this curious extra story that was running through. It's very good.
0: For wit, for naughtiness, for insight, for penetrating observations, everyone needs to go to your book and prepare themselves for their next museum visit. Dinah, thank you so much for making time today.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Max. It's been very nice to talk to you.
0: We've been speaking today with Dinah Kasson globally renowned exhibition designer and co-founder and partner of Casson Mann, a design practice with Roger Mann in London since 1984. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.